You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello and welcome back to a social justice podcast. My name is Nicholas Sperling. I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Amara Kuttner, the interim leader of the Green Party of Canada, for a conversation on food insecurity. First, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled, especially when you're talking about food. I love food. But yeah, I guess my background done a number of things at this point, but I started with getting my PhD in astrophysics and I studied black holes. I then ran for parliament in 2019. I did a bunch of kind of diversity work in the sciences before that as well. I founded a nonprofit that works on policy that is not generally talked about elsewhere, so decolonized immigration and um, actually like creating tools for people for community empowerment. Um, Yeah, then I ran for leadership of the party in 2020 and didn't win, but now I'm serving as interim leader. Wow, what a, an incredibly varied uh, background you have. I feel like we could bring you back for all sorts of different topics <laughs> on this podcast. I left out some of the interesting pieces too. So Okay, well, <laughs> maybe we'll get to some of those throughout this. <laughs> um, I think just to set the stage for the audience, we should answer the question of what food insecurity is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you want to talk about what food insecurity means to you? Yeah, I think at this point it means multiple things. I think that if I were to have been talking about food insecurity even maybe three years ago, it wouldn't be quite what it is now. So I would say before talking about food insecurity, I would have just started with saying, do people have consistent access to food? Is it easy? Is it affordable? Et cetera. And I think there's kind of a couple things that are shifting in that. One is the pandemic and supply chains. And so we're dealing with the availability and security to access for food at a much larger scale. And also now with inflation and rising costs, which is not all inflation, but people just taking our money, um, we're also having more issues with food insecurity, which is like, I think the statistics around 50 to 60% of people in this country now are struggling to feed themselves, which is... That's a huge number. It's a huge number. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who is struggling to feed themselves at all, I would count that as food insecurity. I think we've also got the climate aspect of it, which means that as crops start to have problems or we have also escalating conflict and war, causing food supply chains to be difficult as well, that that also adds to food insecurity. One last piece, though, to it, I would add underneath the aspect of food sovereignty, which is that people actually have the deeper right to food and the ability to have their original food ways or any sort of sovereignty to do with that in the first place, but kind of access to food, access to food traditions, and kind of the ability to maybe even produce your own food being important. Right. And uh, I guess that food sovereignty really gets highlighted when you talk about Indigenous groups having access to food that maybe the rest of the population doesn't have because it's part of their tradition and... um, you have to be able to balance that sort of sustainability while respecting traditions and figure out how to make that work on a global scale as well as within Canada. Have you personally experienced food insecurity? No, I haven't. Um, I've definitely lived in places where it's very common and I've lived in places where food is not as easily accessible. So I lived on a one of the Gulf Islands that's off-grid mm-hmm. and so Either people are growing their own food or you have to order groceries. So there's the potential that if there's a storm or whatever, you won't be able to get your food. But I know I have been privileged enough to never have to worry. 
Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a good thing to clarify for the audience is I'm also coming from that place of privilege. I haven't dealt with food insecurity myself. I've um, had to you know, cut costs sometimes because I didn't make a lot of money to buy cheaper, less healthy food. Maybe that'll come up throughout the conversation about you know, how a lot of people will often rely on unhealthier options because of their access to food. But uh, I think it's an important point. Uh, normally on these podcasts, I try to have three people here be uh, someone who is particularly knowledgeable on the subject and then someone who has experienced this, the topic firsthand. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to have three people today because one of our guests uh, ended up having to cancel at the last minute. So just so the audience is aware that we're both coming from that perspective of, um, of having privilege when it comes to food security, but maybe that's not always going to be the case. And that's something that we have to consider. And, and obviously you have to consider to a very large extent leading a party that's hoping to govern Canada because you're going to be front and center in, in that push if that's the case, right? Yeah, and it, it is very important to acknowledge that. I have kind of been really close with people who I've known grew up on food stamps, and so I've, I've learned a lot, but it has never been firsthand experience. But I've known through actually really witnessing the traumatic after effects that people have from when they live through food insecurity and an extreme poverty of then how that affects the, the way they even approach food and eating for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, a, I guess, a trauma response in a lot of ways. And I know that that exists. I talk about this on every podcast that we do, but all of the issues we talk about overlap. And um, that's a response that I've seen with regard to a lot of different things, like poverty being one of them, where it really impacts the way people live their lives in the future. If even if they're out of poverty at that point in time, they're still living, in a lot of cases, with the mindset of being in poverty because that's how they grew up. So we have to recognize that it affects people throughout their life and that all of these issues we talk about are, are intersectional ones. What's the difference between food insecurity, food scarcity, and hunger? <laughs> I will try. Okay. Uh, I can try to chime in as well because yeah, I did do a little bit of so research. Let's share this, this one. <laughs> sure. Uh, so my understanding is food insecurity is um, not being able to access the nutrients that you need, um, basically the essential foods that your body needs to survive. Um, hunger would be going without food for longer periods of time, whether it's because of poverty or whether it's because of food insecurity or maybe there's other factors involved. And... Food scarcity just refers to the lack of available food and not necessarily food as a whole, but it could just be a specific type of food that is yeah. lacking. Um, did you have anything to add to that as far as your understanding of those? No, that's pretty much it. I think that, yeah, hunger is definitely the one that I've always understood to be more extreme. People are going through a period where, say, there's, you know, heading toward famine or something like that, where mm -hmm. it is seriously like a problem for people to get anything. Insecurity is is where you don't have reliable access a lot of the times and it could shift around or whatever. And hunger is more of a state. Yeah, and I think also just differentiating between hunger and famine, like you might be hungry because you didn't eat for a day, but that doesn't mean that there's a famine yeah. going on. A famine is something that, uh, at least from my understanding, affects everyone, whereas um, hunger may only affect someone who doesn't have money or... Um, someone who doesn't have access to food for maybe they've got a disability and they're not able to leave their house. The person that was supporting them wasn't able to provide them with food, but it's not affecting sort of society as a whole. 
And I would say, you know, hunger is a broader term. So it's the one that, you know, we use at a global level to say, like, we need to solve world hunger. What is that? People not having food in many places. Right. But it's not quite the same as, yeah, food insecurity. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap in these terms. Like food insecurity, for instance, uh, would, or a famine would be considered food insecurity, but food insecurity doesn't necessarily mean there's a famine. Yeah. So. And I would say hunger is both. Right. Say. Yeah, yeah. I guess we've touched on a, a few points, but uh, can you provide some examples of things that might cause uh, food insecurity or lead to food insecurity? Yeah. I mean, biggest one, of course, I would say is poverty beyond anything else right now. But there's a whole bunch of different aspects that can come up. And right now, supply chains are a big one, too. I would say also not just poverty, but the way, way in the place that people are living, sometimes this can happen, where especially because of socioeconomic stratification, people live in an area where it's actually difficult to access food, mm -hmm. where somewhere else in the city is easier to access food. So it's harder for somebody living there and everything. It's, it's a struggle to if, even reach. If someone's in a more rural area? Not even just rural areas, but you'll see in the way that cities are built that there are some, often the places of like lower incomes or everything actually have, it's harder to get food. Mm -hmm. And so that, that can add to it. But another stuff is of course just scarcity or another thing is just scarcity of resources in the first place. And, you know, I, I always talk about the fact that we live in a world that is completely abundant and scarcity is cons construct. Scarcity is a construct as well as a mindset. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's constructed that way means it's very true for a lot of people is that they don't have access. So scarcity can come from many things. And one is, supply chains. One is societal structures and poverty, and then one is like literally climate related. So if something like you're not getting your wheat from across the planet or anything like, which is also supply chain, but can be related right. to something like a drought or a war. We're seeing that with Ukraine at the moment. Yeah. Um, I was really hoping that we would have uh, this third guest specifically for this conversation because the person I was thinking of was um, involved in a no-barrier food bank. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that no-barrier food bank needed to exist is that when you talk about the sort of socioeconomic barriers to accessing food, it was a big problem for homeless people and trans people because a lot of food banks will require that you have proof of residence or proof of identification. And if you're, say, a, a low-income trans person, you may not have been able to change your ID. If you're a homeless person, maybe you don't even have an ID because you can't afford to get one. And you're then in the most marginalized community when it comes to accessing food, and yet you can't access food because you don't have those things. So the, this, this food bank uh, that's a no-barrier-access one, uh, Sage Community Food Bank, actually, I'll, I'll mention them because... We're doing some fundraisers for them with the flag shop, and um, they exist specifically because of, of those barriers to accessing food. So I was hoping for that perspective, and we don't we don't have that unfortunately. But thank you for bringing that up. I'll add to it too, actually, mm -hmm. about barriers in that we think about intersectionality. So of course, for poverty, there's whatever form of marginalization you experience, everything is always going to be compounded. But a huge one is also disability. But it just makes me think, too, when we talk about food, all food access is not the same. Mm -hmm. So if you, are, if you are experiencing homelessness, for instance, you can't eat the same things as somebody who has a kitchen. 
Right. And if you, say, have mobility issues, you can't cook the same way mm-hmm. as somebody that has a kitchen and is able, whatever, whatever abilities that somebody has. And, and the same goes for a lot of different things. If you can access different spaces, that also just affects what you can get in terms of food. And that's a, actually a really good point to make. Because um, you often hear about homeless people struggling to find jobs because there's a cost associated with finding the work. You've got to travel there. You have to find clothes that look nice, find yourself a shower in some way. And the ability to do that is limited, and the ways of doing it tend to be more expensive. So if you can't cook a meal, for instance, you're now having to buy pre-prepared food, which tends to be more expensive, which makes it even harder than to save up money to buy more food that you might need or housing or whatever else it is that you need money for. And it's often less healthy. Absolutely. I had like you're always, all the issues compound themselves. But that actually reminds me of one of the things that I think about pretty often, which is maybe it's because of the astrophysics background, but I think about like the way society's constructed and I'm like, Mm. this is wrong. (laughs) There's something fundamentally off about everything. And part of it is because everything is literally constructed to keep us out. There is no common space. There is no, so I always think like an ideal society, not even ideal, a better society would have access to food like everywhere. We would be growing food that people could just have. But I think about this, like why can we not cook? Mm -hmm. Why do people not, why cannot why can people not have access to shelter just naturally in some way and why can they not cook you know it's like these are not things that are difficult in terms of human existence is having shelter having the ability to like make a fire and put a pot of food on it it's something that even like not too long ago people could just do mm-hmm. and it's not like these things are really taken away and we might think of it because of the way we were taught to think that, oh, well, that's, you know, more primitive or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or you'd have to be nomadic or your society would be less. But to me, like, our society hasn't developed in a positive way if people can't actually kind of freely, without infringing on anyone else, have their basic needs met. Yeah, and I would say that it has been taken away in some ways. Not necessarily that, you know, the ability to go out and start a fire and cook over it doesn't exist, but try lighting a fire in a park in Vancouver. It's yeah. not going to last very long, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you think, okay, well, barbecues or whatever. But, it, you know, I've just, I just end up thinking about that. And I, I in no way ascribe to the idea, because I think it's super colonial, that everyone should be able to just walk off into the woods and, like, you know, stake out a spot and build themselves a cabin and mm-hmm. live there. But I do kind of think of like the, the promise of what life is and how much it is amazing to live here and amazing to eat food, really. Yeah. And that something like growing your own food or foraging is so difficult. That to me is an indicator there's something fundamentally wrong. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is the best example, but I often hear about people wanting to have chickens at home. Mm. And that's a pretty early source of food for humans to, to domesticate yeah. you know, animals and, and use them for food. And, and chickens are providing food while they're living as well as food when they're dead. And um, once you have these big cities and you get you know, issues around noise complaints and all sorts of things, the options to be self-reliant seem like they get diminished because cities are now saying, well, you can't have them for this reason and, and maybe you can't even have a garden for whatever bylaw reason exists. 
So I actually want to talk about the classist and feudalist history of why that's the case. Let's get into it. Sure. (laughs) So I have said a few times now, in I don't know what setting, that I find it ridiculous that we've gotten to this year and we still have a problem with feudalism. But we really do. And so the lawn itself is a invention to prove your status because you don't have to grow stuff on it and you don't have to use it for providing for yourself. So what we kind of ended up having was like democratized feudalism. Everybody now has their tiny fancy house with their lawn, which makes no sense. But but also there's so much of a concept baked into it that the lawn is a status symbol. That if you have to grow food on it, that you're somehow not doing well. If you're keeping chickens, then you must be poor. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being poor, but that's the whole core of it is Mm -hmm. this judgmental basis of of societal stratification. Mm -hmm. And so now that we have all this stuff, it's baked into the law because poverty has been a legislative choice and criminalized forever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's an excellent point to make. And I also think about the fact that at the moment, we don't struggle with food insecurity enough, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, from a, a larger societal perspective, that we're willing to take drastic action to preserve the agricultural land that we have. Like, think about uh, in Richmond, they keep talking about building high-rises on extremely fertile land. Well, maybe that's not a concern right now, but what about 10, 20 years from now when we're dealing with all of these droughts, floods, and all all sorts of things that are going to impact our supply chains, our way of living, it would be really valuable to have some actual farmland in the city that we could use, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I think it is affecting us now. We're just not aware of it. And I think that that brings up a point of a way now that a lot of our food systems are constructed. They seem efficient, but they're not. They're efficient for profit alone. So they're not efficient for providing good food. They're not efficient for making sure that we can get food and make sure it's grown near us. <laughs> so there's any sort of security in it, all those sorts of things. And a lot of the way that agriculture has gone is so industrialized, it's just compounding all our problems, whether that's the health of the food itself, whether that's climate change, whether that's pollution of any kind, whether it's the health of the farmers, the like literal sustainability of any of the practices with the farming itself or the fact that you have to subsidize any of it. So like, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And it's a massive problem already, but the way everything's constructed makes it so something that is actually kind of critical and not a crisis, but there Mm -hmm. is actually not being looked at because you can kind of fake it through whatever, whatever societal structure or system or economic measure makes it seem like it isn't a problem now. Right. And I think... Like as a society, we did experience a little bit of, of what food insecurity looks like when we had these floods taking out our supply yes. lines. And suddenly the lower mainland, which is home to a huge amount of people, millions of people, it doesn't didn't have access to certain types of food because they couldn't get here. And I think the problem though is that people weren't so significantly affected that they were up in arms and demanding that their government did something. So the government doesn't take that as a cue to actually do anything about it. So we end up seeing so much inaction. And at what point do we kind of get to a breaking point where the government says, oh, actually, now we have to do something because we see this big problem. And at that point, is it too late? Yeah, I'm a little concerned about that. 
for sure. Because I think the other way that people do it is it's like they're shuffling around chess pieces on a massive board, right? They're like, well, we can just get it from here and here and here. And it's like, nope, no, 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 no. This is absolutely the time where we need to be concerned with and setting up local self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about that, I think every once in a while people are like, well, not everyone's going to live on their own homestead. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's, not the, that's not the idea here. People are like, well, you're, you, know, you can't grow everything in the city. Mm-hmm. To challenge slightly, but I get it, right? You're not going to somehow have like grain fields that everybody needs in your city. Right. But you can grow a lot of what you need in your city if you were to actually use the space. Like and vertical agriculture. Vertical or everyone's lawns they're not using, mm-hmm. like, open space. And I, I start to think, like, how much space is taken away from us by random things that aren't actually used for, like, human life at all mm-hmm. in the city that technically could be growing food or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Coquitlam, they've got planters along the street where they grow food and people can just come by and yeah. you know, grab a head of lettuce if they want, that sort of thing. But it's not a common thing. Like, it's a unique his area of the city that everyone was wow can you believe that Coquitlam <laughs> does this this is so cool well we should be doing it everywhere right <laughs> yeah 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 and I think that we have to get away from this idea that somehow food security and food sovereignty even that it has to be somehow individualist Mm-hmm. like everything else, right? So it's like when somebody says, oh, well, we need to do small farms and somebody somehow is imagining that everyone then therefore has to move out to the country and grow everything they need. It's like, no, 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 no. We can have community structure here where this stuff is actually worked out and we have a system to provide for each other that has that resilience built in. So if your entire area gets flooded, things will be fine because you know where you can get things and you kind of understand like, okay, if this region has a pre- predicted drought, California has a, you know, drought predictions that are starting to last for a lot longer. And that's where a lot of um, salad greens, for one, but even stuff that we have in our grocery stores up here comes from. Yeah. So if you know this is coming, you, if you actually had a food system at a broad scale that was balanced out and understood, and it was mapped with climate trends, you'd be ready for it. Uh, absolutely. And I'm seeing a lot of similarities between the conversation that we're having here and the conversation that we had on episode two of this podcast, which was on the climate crisis, mm. around preparedness. Like, the same issues are happening when it comes to the climate crisis, where our governments just aren't preparing for what is to come. And at some point, and maybe we're already there, it's too late. So we were having a conversation around engineered climate solutions and how awful they could potentially be, but how it might be our only option if our governments oh, don't really get their I really hope not. Mm-hmm. I see. I feel the other way about that. And this is about how I feel about food too, that the solution to everything is community empowerment. And the idea that somehow we should, we should meddle more to fix a problem of meddling mm-hmm. just doesn't feel right. It's like the whole, like we keep introducing invasive species to take out the next one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the vibe I get from that Just whole idea. Actually, it's kind of like, you know, if you send a canoe down a river and it's empty, it's going to get to the end of the river upright. But if mm. you put a person in it, it's probably going to flip over. Mm. It's, you know, just let nature yeah. do its yeah, thing. With exactly. The human intervention yeah. only seems to harm it, us. Just don't. Just, mm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I feel like with that, you know, if we're talking about bringing systems to a halt, or whatever that are causing stuff. It, it's by giving people the power to detach themselves from the problematic structures. 
and food is a huge part of that. And so is the preparedness to get through everything. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, I'm really reticent to ever think that it's a good idea to mess with the whole climate, but it, yeah. you can do it at a smaller scale, which is goes the other way, which is the preparedness side of things. Mm -hmm. How do you get an area ready to withstand high heat and temperatures? Like, how do you make sure you're ready to stop a fire from reaching people? That sort of thing. So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, you're not messing with the weather, but you are creating a system to protect yourselves. And right. that could be for food too. Okay, you're going to have flooding, you're going to have um, temperatures that stuff isn't going to live through in terms of crops, but you could do work to make sure you have systems to protect that, mm -hmm. which could help offset. And kind of looking to the climates, I guess, that are experiencing the climate you will likely experience in the future and go, okay, well, what are they doing there? And that will help us inform what we do here. Um, that took us on a little bit of a tangent, but uh, I think that's great. You know, we can take a tangent on any of these mm. questions. Um, I mean, we were going to land in climate somehow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got the question still coming up. Even. We'll see if it still works. So just kind of continuing on with the conversation that we were having around people that are affected by food insecurity, uh, maybe we want to delve a little bit deeper into who those people might be. They tend to be the most vulnerable excuse me, the most vulnerable people in our population, from what I understand, right? Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize now, like, oppression, marginalization, et cetera, like, affects a broad group of people and differently in a lot of ways. But I think that we're at a very particular moment where we're coming to the end of kind of, there's been a falsehood to how well everyone's doing. And it's not just when you go through economic crash cycles, but I think we're at a particular place now where everything is compounding. And so food insecurity is set to now, I think, affect a lot more people. And both because of, well, supply chain problems and, and climate, but also just because of affordability. And so I think for so long, we think of, okay, people who are impoverished have trouble here. But when people get as squeezed as they are now, access to food and especially nutritious food suddenly becomes an issue for a lot of people that it wasn't before. And people do not necessarily also have the skills and the tools to feed themselves well. Right. Which then compounds when you suddenly have like, everyone has less time, everyone has less money. People are going to be eating less healthy, but also sometimes like, it's just all over the place in terms of what's affordable mm -hmm. and then whether people have the ability to make sure they're having proper nutrition or even kind of had that training in the first place. Right. Um, and I was watching a, a video recently on how it is that the land that we have on earth is able to support the human population. And it comes down to nitrogen and, and the ability to fertilize the land. So prior to the invention of fertilizers, the planet would not have supported the population that's currently on the planet, right? Um, so, I, I mean, may, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. This Ish. is what the video portrayed. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and, and feel free to chime in on that as well. But I'm kind of wondering, is population an issue in this as well? So that's a tricky one. Because a lot of the history of talking about population makes a, a bunch of core assumptions of how people are going to live. And... I don't think that it actually would not sustain the number of people 
which just have to be done differently? It has to be done differently. So right now, we also massively overproduce food. Mm-hmm. So the amount of, I don't, even, I don't know the numbers, but we've pr- produced way more food than we actually eat. Absolutely. And it goes to waste. And a lot of it's produced in kind of destructive ways. But, like, there's a cost also associated with the way that we fertilize. There's a lot of loss in industrial farming. Like, it's, it's, and it's not, like, again, I don't think you're going straight back to, like, tiny farms here and everybody working on tiny farms. Like, there's a middle ground to what is actually going to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of land that we don't currently use for farming that we could, speaking of agricultural land being taken away. Yeah. But I think there's also a lot of kind of methods of food production. And speaking of food sovereignty, the ways of being and ways of living in terms of food that work in a lot of places in the planet that don't involve the type of agriculture that we associate with the food we eat. Right. So population itself is not an issue. Consumption is an issue. Right. So, so eugenics isn't the answer. <laughs> and you know what is so interesting is every time anyone ever talks about population and it always goes to, well, we need less people. I'm like, no, you don't need less people. You need less consumption. Mm-hmm. And I'll pause for a moment to talk about the ecological footprint because it works the same for food. And if you're looking at the consumptive trends of people, like the people that are the most impoverished in the world, do not have a problem with this. They do not overconsume at all. And even here... If you were to look at people's individual footprint, it's like averaged over people, which means you're dealing with the richest people and their consumptive habits being given to all of us somehow. (laughs) But if you actually just look at an average person in Canadian society, we're barely over consuming. Right. So if you were to be taking off like, and this is of course for like carbon footprint or whatever, but the same happens for everything else. So if we're, if we shift we can step back for a second. If everybody in the world is going to be eating like feedlot cattle and the way that everything is currently produced, like in terms of grain and soy and all these other things, no, it's not going to work. Right. It does not work. But if we were to eat crickets and ugly apples, maybe it would work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think it, yeah, it's crickets, ugly apples. It's like you're just transforming your meat consumption to not, I don't eat meat, so I don't know, but like you're, you're, Consuming less of it, it's better quality. It's like in ways that is, is done that's supporting the land instead of taking only from it. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking, there is probably a balance there. There is, I'm sure, a limit for how many people can be. But right now we have no idea what that looks like. Right. And we have you, so many ways that we can make our food production more efficient as well. Yeah. And you're looking at massive swaths of the globe that are not over-consuming. Right. And they're managing to feed themselves off the land that is there. Mm-hmm. And so I think for any of those arguments, we have to break down the underlying assumptions. And the thing is, the consumption cycle has to be broken. Right. And the, that whole idea of the way, and, and for us to actually understand where our food comes from, and with that, for food insecurity, making sure that everyone has access to food should be, like, primary. <laughs> this seems like a really good chance to learn from the indigenous populations here about how they lived off of the land before the reliance on a global economy and... I think about, like, my dad's a Latin American historian, so you know, I hear about the corn and potatoes and uh, how food was created in South America. They didn't, like, they were living in civilizations that were functioning quite well long before any settlers came onto that land. 
and doing so in a sustainable way. So it seems like we should be able to adopt those kinds of practices and all live a little bit more sustainably. Yeah, exactly. And I think about I think about a city and you know, people think you just can't grow in the city, it's not gonna work. I'm like, if you take away the cars, you can't. <laughs> like I just have this very silly idea that somehow when stuff is breaking down and no one's paying attention to it anymore, that we've all just been composting. I don't have a single family home either, but everyone who does is just composting in their backyard and we just wheel it out, take over the streets again. Mm -hmm. And there's there is just so much so much room. And I think that no, you're going to need kind of medium and even large scale farming that isn't particularly industrial to cover a lot of the needs, especially because everyone's in such urban areas. But there is so much more we can eat. And I think that when, I mean, since I have farmed a little, you can tell how what little space it actually takes to provide pretty much everything you need for a household. It's not that much. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's actually kind of ridiculous how much you can produce on a small piece of land. So that's when I think of all the all the front lawns that people have mm -hmm. and how much you can actually do if you were to be using that space for yep. the things. And yeah, adding to that, what is what is actually sustainable for other things that we could be eating? Because we're not all going to be suddenly foraging. That would not be good. And yes, we have high rises, but I also think about that. Like you can grow potatoes in a stack of tires mm -hmm. pretty much anywhere. Like, like a balcony. Just, yeah. Yeah. And so I look at everything and I'm like, you could cover this with food growing and you would be okay. Yeah, I mean, my parents have a, a detached home and, and they recently got rid of their yards. Uh, well, they got rid of their front yard. They're getting rid of the backyard, turning it all into gardens. And it's incredible the amount of produce that they're able to create. Mm -hmm. Like They can't eat it all themselves. They're having to give it away or find ways of storing it throughout the year. And it, it really doesn't take that much space. Yeah. yeah, and I think mainly for the consumption piece, I would look at the amount of farmland that's being used for growing things that are not food. Ah, so, like biodiesels? Yeah, that's one. Also, people are just like cutting down forests for that. I'm like, can you stop? <laughs> I think we don't. There's, there's, it, there's a cyclic way to do this. But that, but also say for feeding, like how much corn is to feed feedlot cattle. Oh, right, because that's so, why they have such a huge environmental impact is yeah. the feeding and the, yeah. the methane yeah. as well, right? Yeah, so that's like a huge thing. And it's like if people really over overalls just stopped eating beef produced that way, it would make a massive difference. But you'd also get the farmland back from mm -hmm. producing food for us instead. Yeah, I mean, there's also like palm oil and, and the forests that are being destroyed for that. And it, there's so many examples of ways that we're not utilizing our land very well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's, it is really the opposite from food insecurity. And so much of the food that people eat when, when they are food insecure is not particularly great, mm -hmm. which is very sad to me, um, and also constructed. <laughs> yeah. But the other side of it, right, is like the idea people have of basically austerity when we have to give things up that we're consuming. And I have the total opposite idea of it. Because, yeah, you're probably going to have to not get all the stuff that's made with palm oil and you're going to have to have less of the things that we associate with luxury say like burgers or whatever but the truth is that you can have fewer much better ones and in the meantime you can make if you act if people actually had access to the food that is both easy to produce and the time to be able to cook it and prepare it which is a huge privilege now which it just should not be 
it would not be that expensive. And that's how I kind of, I look at the way there's a huge difference in North America compared to a lot of the rest of the world where people live in poverty, what they eat. Yeah. I, I mean, it's also incredible in a capitalist system, the ways that we can accommodate for regulations. Like, for instance, if palm oil were to be banned, I have no doubt that corporations are going to find a different oil that they can use that works, right? Um, so you can address those kinds of things, and I don't think that the consumer is going to suffer all that much for it, if at all. And I don't feel like a lot of it's suffering, mm -hmm. right? Like, it, it does take a shift in mindset. Maybe when people get annoyed that they can't get the exact thing that they're wanting on a particular day. But on the whole, I think... Now that we've entered into the opposite sort of territory, when you have 50 to 60% of the population having trouble finding food, mm -hmm. you're, you're out of the space of people going, oh, no, I didn't get the exact thing I wanted. Yeah. And I think you're going to suffer a lot more from having a minimum wage that's lower than a living wage than you are from having you know, a slight reduction in the types of foods that you have access to, because not having that money is going to lead you to buying horrible foods anyway. Yeah. And I think a lot of the same with food, like a lot of the food that we get is not all that good. Mm -hmm. And even when it's super expensive, it's not good anymore. No. I mean, I, I think about uh, when I was working minimum wage job, the amount of ramen I ate, there's not like no nutritional benefit. Dried noodles in a salt packet. What are you getting out of that? But that's kind of what people resort to when yeah. they're struggling. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly what I, what I mean when I look at people struggling here versus elsewhere. And it's, it's horrible because in a lot of the places in the world, and honestly, largely because of colonialism in a lot of places, people have been separated from their original ways of life on the land. And some places they're still intact or moderately intact and people can access food. But in a lot of places we have kind of an issue like that somewhere. Mm -hmm. But there's so much of the world whose basic diets are not hard to produce and it's actually easy to get. And where you go to the, like now we go to the market or supermarket or whatever. And the things that are, that we need and actually the healthiest are super expensive. And so like vegetables are super expensive. Ridiculous. In expensive. most of the rest of the world, vegetables are not super expensive. Mm -hmm. So you can get your staples that way. Right. How does the availability of water affect food insecurity? Kind of a, a big huge question. deal. No, availability of water is a huge deal. And I think it's water is one of the things that I wish people actually talked and thought about more. And I've been thinking a lot about what kind of, especially through the pandemic, there's been a refocus on what we actually need to live, which mm -hmm. I'm kind of glad for. Right? But, you know, people are lacking community, which is very true, but it's still a lot of basic necessity. But food, water, shelter, health. Mm -hmm. But water is this piece that so rarely gets discussed. And we have right now, you know, massive threats to our, the health of our watersheds. Not something anyone ever thinks about. Well, you mentioned California earlier. Yeah. They, they deal with that significantly. Right? Yeah. And it's, you know, there's, whether it's from pollution, whether it's from changes in weather or just regular weather issues that you might have. But that's just like one aspect because that's kind of food production. It's availability and the ability to grow food in your area. But... Clean water is also necessary for people to make food. Clean water is also necessary for so many other reasons. And it, like this, is, this goes back to all the impacts of who experiences these things. It's everything that you have to deal with, like the time to make food, the availability of ingredients, what sort of thing you can get. But there's pretty much nothing you can do without clean water. Yep. 
And access to water is one of those things, too, that you think, okay, should be good, right? No. Look like, how many oceans we have. Right. <laughs> like, again, there should be water. I can get, and it, it, it's one of those things that you should. Mm -hmm. And people have always had different methods. Like, not everyone's water is clean, whether you're getting it from a river or somehow, well, like, you have to treat it, but there's usually a way to do that. So you can boil it, right? And now, of course, in this society, it's really unfortunate for anyone who has to boil their water, but it's also a commitment, right? Like, you have to do this work. And there's places with massively polluted water, which is different than slightly dirty water that you have to boil. Like a Flint, Michigan type of situation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or people with mining nearby, people with, especially in a lot of First Nations communities, yeah, that's seriously contaminated water. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm familiar with, say, living with water that you're getting from a lake and you definitely have to boil it because there's stuff in it is not at all the same thing as mm -hmm. piped water coming through your taps that's got, like, serious chemical problems with it. Right, like when you turn the tap on, it's just brown coming out. Yeah, or some other variety of interesting colors. Yeah, but and that fracking, I guess, yeah. leads to that as well. Yeah, so I think that this is, this is a big issue and then all the changes in water security as well directly impact food security. And... Yeah, again, for like all the reasons, I don't like I list them every single time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it is not just about food production. It's about cooking. It's about all of it, being able to have clean food as well. Right, having those basic necessities that we all need to yeah. survive. Yeah. And then I would just right back again put the climate piece in there because mm -hmm. as we have changes in our basically global water cycle and you have droughts, this is a huge, it's just like, that's probably the biggest immediate impact. Droughts are. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that'll lead to complete destruction of crops. Yeah. yeah. Just crop failure, and especially for people who herd, herd loss, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so earlier you mentioned that, was it 50 or 60% of people are struggling to find food? How are you seeing that shifting these days with the rise of inflation? largely because of the rise of inflation that we've gotten to those numbers. So I okay. saw two different statistics. And the first one was 60. Yeah, it was a few months ago. And it was 60% of people are, are struggling to make sure they get food on their table. And then it was 50% recently also. And I think that there is a wide variety of what that means. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, for, for some people, it means they're just seriously having to cut down. And then for other people, that means they don't have access to food at all. And, and so that, I'm not sure where in that statistic you have what. And our systems of dealing with food insecurity, like food banks, are being stretched to the limit, I would think, with so many people needing access to food. And it doesn't seem like it's going to get better anytime soon because we've got interest rates rising, the inflation's still going up. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I think I would separate that into, you know, okay, it's overall cost, but there is like an added piece where food is definitely skyrocketing in cost, mm -hmm. which is just ridiculous and needs to be solved at the base. People need to be provided food or enough money to buy themselves food. Mm -hmm. End of story. But as you're seeing everything else at the same time, so housing crisis, there was already a huge number of people who could not get easy access to food or consistently be eating because of how much they're spending on rent. Right. Which is... Also getting worse now. So here you have to take a problem that's already causing food insecurity and then you make it worse while also making food less accessible and more expensive. And it's just like 
yeah, kind of stuck in a we're, situation where yeah. you can't win. We're, we're, we're definitely at crisis level for this stuff, and that's what I think, speaking of government not responding for flooding, or which is affecting food and, and, and climate in general, I'm feeling this right now, right? Like, okay, gas prices are going up, so we're going to give everybody a rebate for gas that has a car. And I think, okay, we are unfortunately relying on transportation to get around for everybody to be able to live their lives. But I think things have gotten a degree more serious than that in terms of basic hierarchy of needs, right? Like, people are not able to eat Mm -hmm. is a much bigger issue. And I think this is also where hunger comes in because food insecurity is kind of one thing. But I think we... We don't immediately, especially people like me, privileged enough to not be struggling with it, annoyed by prices perhaps or shocked by them, but still fundamentally okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I might be dipping into savings if things get really bad for stuff like housing and things like that, but I'll be fine. And I think for a lot of the people that are there, we don't know what it looks like to have actual food insecurity and then hunger. Which is, you know, we think, oh, people are just going to start starving. And therefore, we don't realize it's a problem because no one looks like they're starving yet. Right. But what it means is, like, it's not suddenly like, oh, people just aren't eating. It's the quality of food decreases. It's, you know, like you said, eating a lot of ramen. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. not going to... So all this stuff compounds and takes over and, and reduces people's overall health, which honestly was not great systemically before that. But or people are eating less. You know, they're not capable of of providing the, themselves the nutrition they need, but they are in fact still eating. Mm-hmm. Well, on on the note of rebates for driving, I got two checks because I have two vehicles. Mm. Why do I need a rebate on both of them? Like the people who need that money probably don't have two vehicles. <laughs> Like, just to throw that out there, but... You know, it's a very important point. (laughs) (laughs) I just kind of thought that was ridiculous. I mean, I have two vehicles because one of them is more fuel efficient, and I'm trying to, you know, uh, cut costs and also not pollute as much for that reason. But at the same time, I've got enough money to buy the two vehicles, so I don't really need the $200 back. Yeah. could go to a better use. Yeah. And I'm thinking about food banks, too. Yeah. and, And how... So much of the things that we need for our society to provide for people, which shouldn't have to exist, right? Like fundamentally, no one in a world that is this abundant with this much technology should be struggling that much. Yeah. It is systemic choice that we need to do something about. But in that case, like, wouldn't that be the first thing we do is figuring out how to make sure everybody's eating. And I think the fact that we have the availability of things to fill our stomach that don't actually provide us nutrition is something that stands in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Because if people were actually going hungry at a much more noticeable rate, then it would be like a huge pressure. Yeah. I mean, on the note of food banks as well, I think about the fact that they're not providing all the nutrients that people need either. Like that's mm-hmm. not the perfect solution, even if we were to be funding it properly, or maybe if we were funding it properly, we could have the proper nutrients. But um, that came up on our mental health podcast, episode three, where uh, one of our guests mentioned what it's like for them to go to a food bank 
and he said, you know, you get bread that's expired, you get some lettuce that looks really wilted, you get like an onion. What, like, what, do you, what meal are you making with these things? You're making a wilted lettuce and onion sandwich. Right. You've got these like weird sort of foods. You're not quite sure how to use them. They're not very good in terms of nutrients and or quality. Um, and that's just the reality for, I mean, in this case, someone who's dealing with poverty, that they don't have access to that. And I think that's also a part of like when we talk about nutrition, I think people are like, oh, like, are you properly getting a balanced diet? I think we're way far away from talking about having a balanced diet. We're mm -hmm. talking about whether people are literally getting the nutrients they need for their body to continue mm -hmm. functioning. Making well, sure people don't get scurvy. Like, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're over there. We're not on the. We're not on the. Have you made sure that you've got enough protein today? Side of right. things. We're like getting this many grams of whatever yes, it is. That's like actually, are you getting the vitamins or other whatever basic component that your mm -hmm. body needs to function that your brain can keep it up for a long time? We have universal health care. We should be caring about those things because if people aren't getting the nutrients they need now, they're costing our health care system money, which is costing us as taxpayers money. Like it, the whole thing is actually incredibly expensive, which is always really important, I think, <laughs> which is that everyone has these economic arguments for things. Actually taking care of people and making sure that people are healthy and can kind of live meaningful lives and feel like they are welcome to have a place in society. Doing all that well is actually cheaper <laughs> than what we do now, but that would not allow people to be profiting off of us the and, same way. Yeah, I try to explain it, and maybe this isn't the best explanation for someone who's environmentally minded, but I, I try to explain it in terms of vehicles, mm. right? Like, it's going to cost you a lot less in the long run if you do preventative maintenance on your vehicle than if you just wait for something to blow up and then repair it. And that approach can be taken when it comes to pretty much any societal issue. If you do your preventative maintenance, it's going to cost you a lot less in the long run. But for whatever reason, the people who consider themselves to be like financial experts don't seem to view it that way. Like You've got the political parties that are you know, supposed to be the most fiscally responsible making decisions that seem very fiscally irresponsible. And that is because fundamentally they're not fiscally responsible for us, they're fiscally responsible for the people who can make the most money. The wealthy individuals. <laughs> the wealthy individuals. Right. And I, that, that's the whole thing is like the profits, like the whole idea of what we're supposed to be striving for. Like I think we all kind of agree that we want to be well and live healthy lives, but that's not what the entire system is set up for. It's set up to actually extract from us and exploit us to take for things. And so, like, naturally that stratifies to doing the basic minimum to keep people producing profit for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that isn't feeding it back in the system as well as the labor. But at the same time, the end game of that, you mentioned eugenics earlier, is not the answer to, <laughs> to something. But I think that we need to be aware of actually how much eugenics is built into our structures. And what happens is that, and we're actually seeing this recently, and this is not, this is so difficult, but like with the homeless people being murdered oh, on yeah. the streets, like that is actually also the kind of end result of a society that dehumanizes people and blames them for their, for their situation. It's not even as direct as that. It could just be leaving homeless people on the street yeah. in this sweltering heat we're dealing with yeah. right now. And it's, yeah. that kills people yeah, as well. Exactly. And I think with, at the core, when you're dealing with something like food insecurity, is people are still viewed as expendable. Mm -hmm. So societally, 
in the values that are currently underlying our society, not the ones we aspire to when we say that we have, but the ones that are actually underlying the construction, don't mind if people die. Don't mind if people starve. Because you're replaceable for what you're doing and until that reaches a certain point. But even when you're reaching a certain part, like large percent of the population that's struggling for something, it's not enough to threaten what it is that is being gotten out of you, I guess. Yeah, and I hope people are recognizing that that's how governments operate, that that people are expendable to some degree, because we saw that during COVID, Mm -hmm. right? There's a number that every government will have in their minds. If we have more than this many people dying, it's a problem. If we have less than this many people dying, it's okay. We don't really care. Yep. And for something like food, you have, it takes a long time for people to die of it. But you have a lot of people who are decreasing their lifespan, they're decreasing their health, you're yet costing the system in different ways later, but all of that is, you know, generating for something else. Mm -hmm. So it's okay to put people through that. But you're not looking at, you know, and, and same, right, with the heat dome last year. It's mm-hmm. a certain number of deaths. Oh, well, people should have prepared. So the blame goes straight back to the individual. Mm-hmm. And the same, I think the same comes down to it for food, you know, and this is why I want to be so careful when I'm saying, oh, people should be eating better or whatever, or like people should be cooking for themselves. No, right? Fundamentally, people don't have access and they don't have the time or the energy or all the other things that are necessary. And it is not their fault that right. that's the case. Those options should just be accessible yeah, to them. And they're not. And mm-hmm. so, so often too, when the conversations come back around, it's like, but your options are there and it's your fault you got to it. You should have been somewhere else in a stratified class to be able to do these things. Mm-hmm. And so that compounds all the blame. It's like, nope, you're individually responsible for where you got to. And so, yes, now it's harder, but you basically have to deal with the outcome. Instead of being like, no, this is all legislative and policy choices. And no matter how you're doing in these instances, if you're eating a certain way, there's no shame in it. That is just how you have to be. Speaking of mental health and going to food banks, mm-hmm. like there is, we're taught so much that somehow it's our own fault that you're a failure if you get to a certain point when none of it has ever been up to us. Right. We've got these systems that are designed to make some people fail. The Government of Canada outlines four categories of food security. Food secure, marginal insecurity, moderate insecurity, and severe insecurity. Do you think that those categories are useful? And how does our relationship with food insecurity differ in Canada as opposed to other areas of the world? I would say that those categories are useful because there is such a broad difference. But at the same time, nobody dealing with food insecurity is paying attention to what level of food insecurity they have <laughs> on the government of Canada scale. I made it like, from moderate. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like so, there, there's a lot of policy people, somewhat like myself, that are like, okay, we need a way to categorize and understand what we're dealing with. But at the same time, like we need to go deep into the way that you transform a system to to fundamentally be resilient to the things that cause insecurity, but also to just make sure that everybody, you know, I think that categorization sometimes like that, it's like, okay, well, how do we, they are different, solved by different, you see like as the numbers shift, like what your, the extent of the problem you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. But to some extent, this also adds to back to the conversation of some people can die. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it categorizes who you can easily care for and who you can't and what right. what is urgent to address, what isn't, and kind of accepting what degree of suffering and death we're going to find okay. It's a sad place to be. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but globally, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know how everywhere else is, but I think that the what it looks like here looks very different. Yeah, we... I keep coming back to other podcasts that we've done, but we talked about um, wealth inequity, and I did some calculations to figure out what you know the average, I guess, net worth of someone in the world would be, what the average salary of someone in the world would be if everything was distributed e- equally. Mm. And it was pretty eye-opening as far as how privileged we are here. Mm-hmm. And in some ways we're not privileged, like our purchasing power is very low when you've got the you know, food being so expensive, housing being so expensive as compared to other places in the world. But at the same time, our minimum wage of $15, which isn't nearly enough for people to survive on here, is still twice as high as the average wage that someone in the world is getting. Yeah. So when you put it into perspective like that, I, I imagine the same is true of food insecurity. Like there's going to be places in the world where food is more readily accessible. Mm-hmm. There's going to be places in the world where food is not very accessible. And uh, there's going to be places in the world, I would imagine, that droughts are going to have a more severe impact or floods are going to have a more severe impact or maybe land's going to be destroyed from sea levels rising. There's all sorts of um, factors that I imagine are going to be impacting less privileged countries more heavily than here, even if we are still feeling those negative impacts. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I think that there's a variability component. So I think that here we we have a, a system so constructed to not have kind of easy ways to get food ourselves, which mm-hmm. in a lot of places you can still, you know, it's normal to have chickens and you grow in your own stuff and things and like that. Maybe that's anybody. a privilege for, yeah. for those areas that they actually have the knowledge that we don't have to be able to get through those situations. But it's still extreme poverty, mm-hmm. still difficult to access for a lot of people, so it's still not something that everyone is going to be able to do um, because, of, because of extreme poverty and access to land and things like that too. So it, that already has some variation, but I think the resilience of it is another piece. So here, it might be extremely difficult to access food in a way that we don't have in other places, but it's not likely to suddenly change. Mm-hmm. So in another place, something comes through, you have a drought or you have just any sort of severe storm and a whole bunch of people's access to food will be suddenly wiped out because they were kind of producing it themselves or you know, living off a river or something like that. If something happens to that river or a season changes in a way that it hadn't before, gone. We don't have that. Here. And we have a big yeah. country, so we've got, like, if a river is being affected in one area, then other areas of the country can kind of support that area that's being affected. So we definitely have some privilege when it comes to that. I wonder, though, if... Um, I was going to say, just, like, I would say that it looks so... It's probably going to seem and look and be experienced very differently in different areas of the world. So the, the way that food insecurity presents itself, the type of struggle is going to be very different in North America, and especially even in Canada than other places in North America. Yeah, well, and that kind of brings me to a question around um, self-reliance. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense to be more self-reliant on, on, I guess, producing food 
within the country that we live in as opposed to seeking it from elsewhere? Or does that actually hinder our ability to weather those things because, you know, like from an investment standpoint, you want to be diversified so that you can weather the storm? Right? Yeah. I, I think you need, you fundamentally need both. You need a backup system, but you need local self-sufficiency. And you actually need a resilience plan for your food systems locally. And this is because, and this is how the climate crisis comes into it too, you're going to have increasing climate chaos, which means your international supply chains are just not going to be reliable for food most of the time. So you need to have it locally. But you need some sort of backup plan that if like a certain area gets wiped out, the neighboring one can help out or a few provinces over even or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think when we talk about kind of local self-sufficiency, to make sure that's not understood to be like individual responsibility. Because I think people, I mentioned this earlier, but people are like, oh, that means I have to grow my own, all my own food. Oh, right, I have to buy a detached home with a garden right. or something. And suddenly I'm going to be responsible and it's all in that same like individual mindset. But, right. but that is what gives some fragility to people's food systems in other places where everybody is responsible for their own food production because there's a breakdown of community or whatever in a lot of places, also largely due to colonialism, but that because of that, like something can really happen. So the interconnectedness of community, the, the making sure that we're actually providing for each other and making sure that that extends to if something happens to one community, there's another one to help. Yeah, so I guess that plays into the diversification of having those global supply chains, also having a strong local system for being able to provide food so that you've got both avenues. If you're struggling at home, you can access food on a, from a global scale. If you're struggling with the global access to food, you can access food at home. And I think a, a good example of that is, um, don't even know the, the proper name for it, but the Banana Republic, right? Like yeah. the, the fact that essentially bananas got wiped out because of a disease because they weren't diversifying their food. They're like, we're going to stick with this one strain. And when a some disease comes in and starts wiping them out, it's going to take everything out. Um, so I don't actually know where I was going with this. Well, so I will add something in. to that. I will add something to bananas. I, I think to the whole idea of what you're producing where. So I don't know that you should always have like full international supply chains and then your local one so much as like knowing there's a backup. Because otherwise you're going to be balancing the two. And the, if you truly have local self-sufficiency, no one's going to have a consistent market for something somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But you, like if no one's going to be large-scale producing something to ship across. But at the same time, there's certain things you're just never going to be growing at home in the same amount that people want. Right. Work. And you can have greenhouses or whatever, but legitimately, are we going to start growing coffee and bananas here? Probably not to mm -hmm. like a... A, a strong degree. People might have a, a lime tree or two in their in their greenhouses, mm -hmm. but it's still not. And sure, climates are going to shift, and we're going to watch things grow in different places. But we also there's a difference between food generally and then staples. Mm -hmm. And so I would also count like what we need to be focusing on is making sure that people have and are capable of growing staples and kind of vegetables and things that, that will grow in your climate easily locally. That's kind of like we've had staples, for instance, uh, starch-related staples mm -hmm. uh, in, I guess, rice, noodles, um, bread, potatoes are kind of the big ones, right? And every culture has had those from long before we ended up yeah. getting together as one big world that trades. And 
those, I, I guess here we would have the ability to have wheat or the ability to have potatoes. Maybe we have the ability to have corn. There's lots of staples that we can grow here. We don't necessarily need to be going to other countries and getting their food when we have alternatives that could work. And the diversification of that is, of course, super important. As mentioned with the bananas, to make sure that you're growing a bunch of different things in case one doesn't make it. Mm -hmm. Or diseases, all sorts of things that like so much of what we now have is monoculture. Hmm. And so you're super at risk of losing all these things. And, and I think that our global food system is actually incredibly weak. Mm -hmm. And that's a big issue too. But the other thing I would say is do not, for anybody in the world, do not set up your economy to be dependent on export of something that is not a basic need or even an export at all, export at all, right? Like you should have the ability to survive without the rest of that, mm -hmm. but we're not shutting down the global economy because of this happening. You still have it, but. And that's it, kind of yeah. the argument for refining and using our own oil, even if we're trying to transition away from it. It's just, you have more control if, if you're doing it all internally as opposed to outsourcing and also cutting down on shipping costs and pollution. All sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which. Yeah, that's a completely different conversation. <laughs> completely different conversation, yeah. Um, but the transportation costs really are a thing, too, for, for food. There's, there's some ridiculous stuff that goes on now, which I think all contributes to, to, to this issue we have of food costs as well, because it is kind of done for efficiency of money-making. Mm -hmm. The way that food production happens doesn't make sense, but it also is, tends to make it more expensive for us. Uh, so, for instance, like there's a lot of food that's grown in Canada and then sent elsewhere mm -hmm. to be packaged and then sent somewhere else to be sold, like literally from Ontario to Mexico to somewhere in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That makes no sense. We could be growing so much of our own food in southern Ontario and it goes it goes elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, we do that with our lumber as well. Yeah. Ship it over to China, have it made into something and then have it shipped back to us. What do you think would be a useful measure of food security? Oof. That one's a tough one, especially after talking about like the categorization for food insecurity. Mm -hmm. um, I think there needs to be a whole thing about like simplicity of access. And you could be looking at that in so many different ways. Like how much of your income are you spending on? But like that's, you're going to lack a whole bunch of stuff from that right. because of the whole nutritional aspect to it. Uh, but I think that the the basic security aspect also needs to be taken into consideration. And I think that that is somewhat in like the measures, but how well is somebody guaranteed to continue to be accessing food? And like how much would change in their lives that is reasonable to expect to change because people, anything can happen to anyone that suddenly that would be, that would be what had to be given up. Right. That's a good answer. That's kind of a, a very difficult question to provide just one answer for too. There's so many yeah. different factors. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I could ever give a solid one thing answer for that. I just like you have to look at all these factors and, and figure that out. Yeah, and I don't think anyone's come up with you know this is the answer either. We've got different ideas of what food security looks like. Like you know, for some people they might say, well, as long as we've got our staples, then we've got yeah. our food security covered. And other people might say, well, it's not. I don't really feel secure in that way. You know, I, I, I don't feel like I have food security unless I've got my bananas. I right. Um, I'm saying that the intermittence of access is a huge thing. So, like, people can be completely secure, but how, I think I mentioned this, like, 
in terms of variability. It's like how easy is it for somebody to suddenly not be able to get food? Right. And so you, people might in that situation actually feel like they're completely food secure, but it's so not resilient or sustainable that they have no clue that that would be the case. And I think so many people too are probably have some degree of food insecurity and they're just not aware of it because of just like the fact that they're downgrading to what they're eating, mm -hmm. but they've, or they've always been downgraded in what they're eating. So there's no recognition that it's not actually good. Right. And food security might look different for different people, depending on your dietary restrictions as well. I mean, I, if you were to say, all we need are staples and our staple is wheat, well, that doesn't really work for a celiac. So going to do exactly mm -hmm. yeah and i think that there's a lot of intersections with that too and like allergies are a huge a huge piece of it but you know so is so is culture mm -hmm. so is like what people what people eat kind of and or grow up to eat in my mind i heard culture my mind went to bread culture oh and like was, yogurt yeah. yeah yeah i was like i had to pull myself back again and go, oh wait a second you heard it with like societal I'm culture I'm like, yeah. <laughs> not a culture of yeast are there certain warning signs that we can look for as far as being able to determine if this is becoming even more of an issue? Like, you know, it's really urgent. We need to act now. Obviously, we do need to act now. But, um, like, what are the, some of the warning signs that people can be aware of to recognize when this is actually a threat for them? Oh, like individually. So as I say, societally, we're way past that point. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm just trying to think of how do we get people to recognize that this is an issue? What are the warning signs that we can say, well, that's already happening. That's a sign of food insecurity. Or if this happens, that's going to be a sign of food insecurity. Yeah. So I think the markers are different depending on people's situations. Um, one is certainly budgetary. And how much of anyone's income is getting to go to whatever it is that they're spending money on. And if you are watching your food budget get smaller and smaller, that's an issue, certainly. So if the price of housing is going up faster than the price of inflation, that could be a sign of food insecurity. I would say so, mm -hmm. because you're, you're already, you're pressured from multiple directions. Um, I would say too, if people are finding themselves buying like lower and lower quality of food, in order to do something like that, if, uh, if you're eating ramen every day, if you're eating ramen every day, or you're not finding not a good sign. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and I, I also just tend to the more extreme side of this, I think, where people are like, oh, well, I just, you know, in order to have enough food for the week, I'm not going to eat this. You're really kind of heading into some problematic things. But I think there's there's like, depending on where you are, kind of on the scale of things, there's warning signs that it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. And I think that at this point, the fact that Everybody, almost everybody, is actually changing what they're buying mm -hmm. because of food prices. They, it's clearly a crisis. Right. Um, and then knowing, and this is where like an individual warning sign is going to be very different. And I think that a lot of people, too, because life is so difficult, shouldn't be, really, but everyone's so pressured all the time that we're not always aware of where the breaking point is. Mm -hmm. And for when some, something suddenly has to change, especially because people have credit cards and all these other things, there's this expectation something's going to turn around, it's not going to last, and so people are living off something that's not there. So there's a very different relationship to money and poverty along the line as well that changes. So people might notice warning signs in a very different way. Right. And I think 
people will probably have seen warning signs that they may not have recognized as warning signs as well, like the empty shelves in, in supermarkets throughout COVID and, and because of um, those floods that cut off the supply chain. That, to me, is a warning sign. But the moment those those shelves got refilled, everyone just kind of went, oh, it was just temporary. Yeah, and that's where I think that, like, I was thinking about the individual markers mm-hmm. that somebody could see a personal warning sign for their lives. They might be suddenly having to contend with food insecurity individually. Mm-hmm. But systemically, yeah, there's some big ones going on, and <laughs> those are those are them. And I think that when we... It's hard because we're not always paying attention to the things that maybe we should be because we don't hear about them or they're not in the cycle. We might not see how it impacts us directly. But certainly, like last year, we had crop failures because of the heat. Mm-hmm. And things might seem distant. But yeah, war, wheat, big issue. Um, I think it's also really important to note that a lot of wars, historically, most wars are fought over resources or people's random other opinions, but mostly resources. But wheat is a big one. And a lot of wars have been fought over the lack of access to bread. And you will get riots pretty much as soon as bread is a determinant of a lot of things, and peace is certainly one of them. So if we don't do a good enough job of addressing food insecurity now, we could end up at war because someone wants these resources that we have, or or maybe because our country wants the resources of another country. War, but also just general social unrest. Mm-hmm. Bread, access to staples is like core to what causes social unrest. And I think more generally than that, when stuff is actually cut off, so I think I think the statistic is like basically maybe it's not a statistic, but we're always three days away from food riots. Cultural unrest because of lack of yeast culture. Social. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lack of flour. But I will say, like, any time that people are having difficulty getting something that they're used to getting, like, it's a sign that we have an issue. Right. So it's different if, say, like, coffee prices are going up. It's probably a sign that you've got some climate issues, some shipping issues, some other stuff like that, some just global inflationary issues which are of course like caused by those as well Mm -hmm. but just other kind of inconsistencies in the system that are making that happen but when you are lacking things on the shelves that people need Mm -hmm. you are suddenly into a completely different territory and i would also say when you start seeing the sourcing of stuff change like where the food's coming from yeah so would you say that the shift to having american dairy in our shelves is a sign of that yes absolutely and and one of the things you could say is like okay no the market just changed and sometimes it will be that sometimes oh no it was just opened up no worry like the the trade agreement has shifted or whatever but some of the stuff no absolutely not if if overall like corporations that are selling us their food are having to source their food differently it means that there's some really big risks in in everything Right. That's a good one to be aware of as well. Um, That kind of brings me to my last question, unless you have anything that you wanted to chime in with at the moment. I was going to say that I I think that food insecurity is one of those large issues that has so many different factors to it. So whether it's like just the personal experience of it or the large socioeconomic 
Like, all of the pieces, the supply chains, the way we grow food, all like just access and all the intersectional aspects of, of people's lives and marginalization that make it worse too. But there is actually something that we can do about it. And I think that that is not always what we expect it to be. And so, you know, talking about the fact that access to food is very unique, I would say, in North America and not as it is in a lot of places, to work on that is really important. But also to understand how it is that we can start working in our communities to make sure food is provided. Mm -hmm. And it is not just like no barrier food banks, but it's actually starting to do stuff like figuring out how we can collectively grow food and share it and make sure people do have access to cooking food as well. Because food banks are basically just a patch for a problem. They're not a solution to the problem. Yeah. And I think renewing our relationship to understanding food in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes up with people who are experiencing homelessness. People are like, well, you give them food instead of money. And I don't think that that always makes sense because you're, people might not want what it is that you're giving them and they can go buy what it is they actually need. Mm -hmm. But the idea that I think we do need the shift for is just general access to food and breaking down at a systemic and structural level by our individual like mindset shift, the sort of thing of like how, what belongs to people. So having and planting and figuring out how to have like food orchards in a city, for instance, like if people can actually just get apples, it changes, it changes things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think your point about this being a very large issue is a good one. The episodes that we're doing to start off a social justice podcast, the first 20 episodes or so, are all very large issues. So I'm hoping at some point in the future, if this podcast keeps going, that we'll be able to sort of narrow down and focus on some of the smaller issues within these larger ones. But the idea, at least for the time being, is to give people a general overview of some of the major issues that are affecting all of us worldwide, particularly in Canada, and also what we can do about them. So that brings me to my last question, which is what can we do to address the issue of food insecurity here in Canada? And I kind of started answering your question. You did, yeah, yeah. So just if there's anything else you wanted to add. <laughs> yeah, and so I think because it's such a, a large issue, not a large as in like massive issue, which it is, but also a multifaceted issue. It comes up in so many different ways. There are a lot of different things we can do about it. So on the largest scale, I think, is actually pushing for a change in, in the way that we structure our agricultural policy and our supply chain policy. So there are the, like, the large systemic answers to things where you're looking at actually pushing for change in governmental policy around supply chains and reliance on supply chains that are at risk, especially, but any large-scale supply chains especially internationally for food and like really focusing on local self-sufficiency. But then that gets to kind of the next level, which I think that local food security and self-sufficiency is something that we can actually solve at a more local level. So Not getting provincial municipal governments involved? And just forgetting about them too. Like honestly, oh, everybody needs to be paying attention to it. And I am very much for kind of never being like, individually, we ha we can solve this by our individual actions. But I really do believe that communities can. Mm -hmm. So when you get together, it's one of these things that we should be having conversations about. And it's it looks different in different places. So, like, yes, the provincial government and municipal governments need to be looking at it, too. 
how are people going to do in a, in a crisis? It's part of emergency preparedness to look at our food chains, food supply chains and stuff like that. But actually, locally, we need to be looking at this in terms of getting our neighborhoods together, getting our communities together and saying, okay, if we want to create as much food production locally as possible, and even understand if we, if we together have some sort of backup plan, what does that look like? All right. What was I saying? So, they, you know, like there, there are governmental solutions that we need to very much push for. And I think that not just the supply chains, but we need to be pushing governments to support people at a fundamental level. Like, OK, make sure that they are being provided for, that it's being addressed in a systemic fashion, that we're trusting people enough to just provide them resources instead of saying, no, you have to make it in the system somehow. But also at that community level to kind of empower ourselves to do something about it as best we can at a reasonable scale. Because one thing is I don't trust governments to prepare properly. Our governmental systems are very reactive. And at this point, we need proactive stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to fully solve food sovereignty and food security issues by getting together and talking about setting up community gardens. But at the same time, this is a time to start thinking outside the box at that local level and say, is there anybody interested in starting like a lawn sharing food production group or whatever so that and also skill building like do people know how to grow their own food do people know how to continue to access food do we have even a way to set up structures for that we can provide food for each other so like that goes to the next level so you're talking about food banks food banks are great but they are necessarily not a systemic solution to something really big. But at the same time, food banks are so limited. And yet, you know, I, I really strongly believe that every, solving everything is actually not super difficult or that far away. And I think a lot of it is because we've been trained to think that we can't do anything for anybody else. But if we, if people who actually can, for instance, help each other, if we had a, if we built the local networks to actually take care of one another, to understand who it is who's struggling at any given moment, we would be able to cover each other mm-hmm. in times of crisis. And if people are really not eating, there's a lot of people who I'm sure could provide a bit. And right now the only way is putting that in the food bank bin. Right. But not everybody is going to acknowledge or know that they need help. And some of the stuff that can also be done at a local level is food waste. And of how many, how much food is actually thrown out, both at grocery stores and other places, that I know of people who are setting up ways to deliver this to people who are hungry. And a lot of that is is only functional with local networking and a right. little bit of technology, but mostly people caring to do the work. Yeah, and I think both you and I have seen the power of community advocacy. Um, there's a lot of power in just getting a group of people together and doing something. So that sounds like a good sort of rallying cry for the end of the podcast. It's group together and, and create some societal change to make sure that we have that food security. Yeah. And, and that's the amazing thing I think about getting together is, you know, on the one side you're, you're saying, you know, I'll, I'll say don't trust government to solve it all for you. But while you get together and manage to solve a local problem yourselves because they're not moving fast enough, you have a bunch of people who then can push for that change as well. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of managing to do it all at once. Right. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, with that, thank you so much for joining this podcast today. I thought it was a really interesting discussion. Um, 
Thank you for taking the time. I know you're also super busy as the leader of a political party. And thank you all as the audience for joining us today for a social justice podcast. Again, I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling. I've been joined by Amara Kuttner. And this podcast is sponsored by The Flag Shop and based off of a social justice coloring book. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop and inspired by a social justice coloring book.